in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals. And he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons as an offering according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. And then over to verse 22. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord. This same king Ahaz, for he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that, he had, that had defeated him and said, Because of the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessel of the house of God. And he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. And he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem and every city of Judah. He made high places to make offerings to other gods, provoking to anger the Lord, the God of his fathers. Now the rest of his acts and all his ways from first to last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Ahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem. For they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. And Hezekiah his son reigned in his place. In the context of our passage in Isaiah 9, it starts in chapter 7, where God sends Isaiah the prophet to King Ahaz to warn him of his impending doom because of his wickedness. God was punishing Judah for their wickedness. And most specifically, as we read in this passage in 2 Chronicles, he's punishing the nation because the king had led the nation into this vile wickedness. And even in this, Ahaz is hoping that the king of Assyria will come and rescue him because we know the king of Syria and the king of Israel are attacking him. And so he takes from the house of God and from the king's treasuries, the, the, the golden, you know, the, the, the trinkets that are in the house and in his treasuries, and he, and he sends a big offering or, or a bribe, I guess he will, for, to hire mercenaries from the king of Assyria, hoping that the king of Assyria will come and rescue them. But Isaiah tells King Ahaz, no, <laughs> it's going to be worse for you with this king of Assyria than it is now. He's not going to rescue you. Your hope is in the wrong thing. In the, your hope is in man, in wicked men. You know, Ahaz, his big failure there was, one, not trusting God, but not understanding that these kings, even though they were wicked heathens, were tools in God's hands to punish him and his nation. And so he, in the providence of God, he hires an even worse tool in the hands of God. To, and it's going to be for his hurt. And as Pastor Tyler pointed out last week, chapter 8 ends with impending words of doom.
And it doesn't, chapter 8 does not end on a high note at all. We read, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But God is faithful to His covenant promises. He made a covenant promise in the Garden of Eden, did He not? He made a covenant promise to Noah. He made a covenant promise to Abraham. He made a covenant promise to King David. And He would keep those promises. Even though all that's left here in Israel and Judah is wickedness and idolatry. God is going to keep His covenant promise. He will not utterly cut off Israel. He will keep His promise. And so we see in in chapter 7, verse 14, He he, uh, gives a proclamation, Isaiah does, of the coming Messiah. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. Where do we hear that this morning? From the angel Gabriel speaking to Mary, right? It's a fulfillment of this prophecy. In the context of this prophecy, you know, Isaiah tells the king, Look, I'm telling you that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. So ask God for a sign to prove it. And King Ahaz, you know, you would, you would think by reading it, he's like, oh, I'm too humble for that. I won't ask God for a sign. I, I don't think that's the case. He trusted in other gods and not the Lord God. And so he said, I'm not going to ask him for a sign. I might go over here and ask, you know, the, this, this God of Damascus for a sign. And so the prophet says, well, you know what? God's going to give you a sign. The Lord's going to give you a sign. And then he prophesies in the virgin birth. And then continuing over in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, he, he further uh, proclaims the coming Messiah. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And then he goes on down through verse 7, uh, uh, telling about this, this different time, this new time, which Pastor Tyler preached to us last week. And showed us the fulfillment of that prophecy in in Christ when he ministered in the region of Galilee and and the uh, and the north you know up north in Galilee. Well, in the sermon today, I hope to address the name Everlasting Father in three ways. <coughs> A. I hope to address what is not bent by calling the Messiah Everlasting Father. B, and this is where we'll spend the majority of our time because it's in the direct context of the passage here, we will contrast wicked King Ahaz with the promised Messiah. And, And C, finally, we will compare the Lord Jesus, who is that promised Messiah, to God the Father and compare their, um, and how they uh, deal with their people. It is my hope and prayer that we will be drawn closer to Him as we understand His name, Everlasting Father, and that we will love Him more, we will obey Him more, and we will magnify His holy name here this morning and throughout the rest of our lives to His glory.
until he returns for us. Now let's read uh, Isaiah chapter 9 and we'll read verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garden, uh, garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. <clears throat> on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. <clears throat> Holy Father, we do thank you for your word. And Father, we ask now that you would attend the preaching of your word, that you would help us to understand that you would give us a deeper love for Christ and who he is and that you would make him everything to us and every heart here today. For your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> First, we're going to look at what is not meant. And this will take not long at all. <laughs> What's not meant by everlasting father when it refers to the Messiah, the promised Messiah, who we know as Christ Jesus. Because if we take this the wrong way, we can very quickly slip and fall into the heresy of modalism. Modalism says that God manifests himself in, in three different persons at three different times. For example, in the Old Testament, the God the Father manifests himself. And then... In the New Testament, he became incarnate and became the Son. Still one God. And then, after he went back to heaven, he, he came back as, in the form of the Holy Spirit. One person, one God, one essence, one being. That's modalism. Now, I know there's probably a lot more to that, but that's, that's it in a nutshell. One God... And he just manifests himself in, in three uh, different persons. And you've heard this before when people try to explain the Trinity. You know, I, I'm, I'm a dad, right? But, but I'm also a husband. But I'm also a son. But it's just me, one person, right? That's modalism. Okay? We can't use that. We can't use that language when we speak of God and the Trinity. So... What this does not mean 
is Jesus the Messiah. What it does mean, okay? Jesus the Messiah is not our Heavenly Father. The first person of the Trinity, the Heavenly Father, is not the promised Messiah. The Father did not send Himself. When Jesus, and and if you want to turn to John chapter 10, when Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 31, that He and the Father are one, He was not saying that they are the same person. He's saying that they are one in purpose. And in the direct context of what he was saying there, that purpose is the salvation and the preservation of God's elect. His sheep, Jesus says. Let's let's read together, starting in verse 22 of John chapter 10. God's word says, At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the columnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so he's not speaking of one person or one being. He's not speaking physically because one, God doesn't have a physical being. He's not a a physical person. He doesn't have parts like we do, body parts. But he's speaking of their purpose, uh, namely the plan of redemption. They are one in purpose. Here, he's talking about the salvation of God's people and the preservation of those, those that are saved. He's not saying he's the same person. So what is not meant by everlasting father as it pertains to the Messiah is that he is in fact God the Father. No. He is still God the Son. The second person of the Holy Trinity. Incarnate. Our confession in chapter 2 paragraph 3 reads, In this divine and infinite being there are three subsistences. The Father the Word or Son, and Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite, without beginning, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. Which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him? So in the direct 
context of this portion of scripture, <clears throat> it's my understanding that this promised Messiah, the divine one who would sit on David's throne and rule for all eternity, was being contrasted with wicked King Ahaz, whose reign uh, was full of disobedience and vileness and would shortly come to an end. Now I want to say this up front. Uh, some commentators argue, not usually Christian commentators, but Jewish commentators, argue that who was being spoken of here was King Hezekiah. And I would say it, it can't be. Because of the, the terms are used for this. These are terms of divine nature. And so they can't be used of any mortal man. Contrasting King Ahaz with the promised Messiah, uh, John Oswalt writes, Many kings claim to be father to their people and even to their captives. Yet their fatherhood was not of, not of a strictly temporal and self-character. Excuse me. Yet their fatherhood was of a strictly temporal and self-tainted character. End quote. Another Bible commentator, he writes, this positive oracle comes to a climactic end by announcing the birth of a son who would reign forever as a righteous Davidic ruler, one very different from Ahaz. The prophet's message provides information about his birth, role in the government, names, reign of peace, and just eternal rule on the throne of David. It also offers assurances that God will accomplish all these things. End quote. And so there's going to be a contrast here of, of what King Ahaz is like and what this promised Messiah will be like. And we can take from these names, uh, Wonderful Counselor. What kind of counsel did Ahaz give? He led the children of Israel into gross sin even sacrificing his own children on a, on, a, on a pagan altar. I can't imagine that. I can't imagine taking my son and burning him on an altar just to appease some god. We're going to look at a few different aspects. First, obedience. Obedience. Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Jesus, who was the promised Messiah, perfectly obeyed his Father. We'll look at a few scriptures that, that, that show us that. Ahaz, we, we read in Second Chronicles 28, In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same King Ahaz. You know, it's usually in our time of distress, we even see in the Old Testament... The usual habit of Israel, especially if we go like through the book of Judges, is they're at a high point, and then the judge that's leading them to this high point dies, and they spiral out of control. And then they get punished. And then when they're being punished, then they cry out to God, Save us! And then God raises up another judge who leads them to another high point. Probably not as high as it was before, but, but another high point, right? And then when that judge dies, what happens? 
the cycle starts over. And they just spiral out of control until God punishes them by sending the Midianites or the Philistines or whoever against them. Here, King Ahaz has, is being evaded by, by these other kings, these foreign kings. But he doesn't cry out to the Lord. What does it say here? In his time of distress, he became yet more faithless. Talk about a hard heart. Talk about a hard heart. That kind of brings me to a, and I didn't write this down, but another picture of a person in a great time of distress that cried out, if you can, remove this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. You see the contrast there. Christ, even from his childhood, when his parents were looking for him, what did he say to them? Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Luke 2.49, and that's the, the new King James Version rendering. John 4.34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And again in John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What a contrast. What a contrast. King Ahaz had the commands of God, as did all the kings that preceded him. But did he care about them? Did he, did he even make an attempt? No. He just took the nation farther and farther into wicked idolatry. And yet this promised everlasting father would be one that would lead the nation in righteousness and in peace. What about sacrifice? What about sacrifice? We can contrast, contrast the promised Messiah to King Ahaz. Ahaz sacrificed his children to false gods. Jesus sacrificed himself to the one true living God for all of God's people. We read in 2 Chronicles 28.3 and we've already read this. And he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons as an offering. That was King Ahaz. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. And we're going to read the, con the contrasting story to King Ahaz is, is offering his children as sacrifices. Starting in verse 6 of Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us 
and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You see the difference between the present king and the promised king. We also read in Philippians 2, verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Ahaz was trying to avoid death at the hands of some pagan invaders. And yet, Christ died at the hands of pagans. But he did so willingly. He did so as part of the will of God, God's plans. While wicked King Ahaz sinned greatly in sacrificing his own children to false gods, Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, sacrificed himself to the one true living God for the sins of his people. What a difference! What a difference! The one sacrifice was horrible and meaningless. The other sacrifice was horrific and yet life-changing. What about trust and confidence? What do we read about Ahaz and his trust and confidence? Who did he put his trust and confidence in? False gods and men. He trusted... His reasoning... Okay, the king of Syria has come and he's beaten me. So apparently his gods are stronger than mine. His gods are stronger than the ones I'm actually worshiping. So now I'm going to worship his god too. And if we go and read in, in, in the Kings, in the book of Kings, in this account, he actually goes and sees this great altar, right? He says, oh... I want one of those. So he charges the priest to actually put one of those, build that altar and put it in the temple. Who did Jesus put his trust and confidence in? His heavenly father. What does it say at the end of Isaiah 9, 7? And the zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. Jesus confidently trusted God to accomplish this mission, to accomplish His will. And His dying words on the cross were what? Father, into Your hands I commend my spirit, or commit my spirit. Totally trusting His Father. His confidence was in the Lord, His God. What about worship? Well, of course, Ahaz perverted the worship of God. He profaned the temple. And it says he even closed it down. But Jesus, when he was tempted by Satan, said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And as King Ahaz profaned the temple, 
Jesus and his zeal for his father's house drove out the merchants and money changers who were conducting business in the temple. Not once, but twice. What a contrast. I'll put what I want and do what I want in God's house. No. This is a house of prayer, not a den of thieves. You will treat it as such. What a contrast between this everlasting father, the promised Messiah, and the, and the ruling king at the time of this prophecy. Ahaz did not have the true worship of God. Christ only truly worshipped God. How about salvation? Ahaz could not save his people from all those who chose to invade his kingdom. Even though he tried to hire people to come help him, it didn't work. He tried everything that he knew how to do as a king to save his kingdom. And he failed. And we know why he failed. He failed because God was against him. Christ has accomplished for all God's people that which he came to accomplish. And that is salvation for God's people. We read in 2 Chronicles, Therefore the Lord his God, speaking of Ahaz, gave him into the hand of the king of Syria, who defeated him and took captive a great number and brought them to Damascus. He was also given into the hand of the king of Israel. Remember the northern kingdom was separate from the southern kingdom. The king of Israel who struck him with a great force later on. And the Philistines had made raids on the cities. And they dwelt in Judah because of Ahaz king of Israel. For he had made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to the Lord. And finally, so Tiglath-Pileser king of Assyria came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. All his plans came to nothing. He couldn't save anybody, let alone himself or his kingdom. How about Christ? What did the angel say to Joseph? You shall call his name Jesus, for he will do what? A king that can actually save. He will save his people from their sins. And then, of course, this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful passage we read in Ephesians chapter 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Salvation accomplished. But we have more. Do you remember our wonderful call to worship this morning in the book of 1 Peter? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope <coughs> Excuse me, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is what? Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's a sure thing. 
That's a sure thing. It's imperishable. Can never be taken away. Can never can never be destroyed. It's undefiled. It will never be anything but perfect and glorious. It's unfading. It won't pass away with time. And it's kept in heaven. No safer place but in the presence of the living God. (coughs) Salvation accomplished and assured. This king who came to save truly does save. (coughs) And finally, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. That's speaking of something that has taken place. It didn't say, and you will make them this, and you will do this. It said, you have. This is salvation accomplished. King Ahab, Ahaz couldn't save himself. But this promised Davidic ruler, this promised everlasting father, will be the author and is the author and finisher of our faith. He will accomplish it. How about death? Let's compare the two in death. Ahaz died in disobedience and shame and was buried. The end. We don't hear anything else about Ahaz, do we? That's it. And he was buried. And I would venture to say that where his soul is right now is not a very nice place at all. And when the resurrection happens, when the Lord returns, he will be one of those who will be cast into outer darkness, into the lake of fire. Now, I wasn't there at his death. I don't know. I can't say that. There's no chance he was converted, but if we read the, the account of his life that's given to us in God's word, we got a pretty good idea that he was not a good person. The only thing that Ahaz accomplished in his death, and I don't want to sound mean, but was to rid the nation of him and maybe give them hope that the next king would be better. And actually the next king was better. Hezekiah. That's what his death accomplished. It got rid of him. Got him out of, out of the picture. To hopefully that, that Judah could, could maybe regain uh, some of her uh, worship of God and, and, and get brought back to, to the Lord. So he died in disobedience and shame and didn't accomplish anything, did he? Jesus died... It was a shameful death, yes. But it wasn't because of his actions. It wasn't because of his sin. It wasn't because he was a a sinner that he died a shameful death. He died and he was buried. Just like Ahaz died and was buried. That's where it changes. Because we know three days later, he rose in glorious victory. His death accomplished everything that God had sent him here to accomplish. His death did not rid the world of him. (laughs) 
but rather through his death, burial, and resurrection, now the, the whole world can know him. His, his gospel can go forth to the ends of the earth. The Bible tells us, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Romans 4.25 tells us that Christ, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And then we read, what a glorious picture we read from the revelation of John when he sees Christ in his vision. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, <clears throat> but he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. What a difference, even in death. What a difference contrasted this wicked ruler and this promised righteous ruler who would be called Everlasting Father. The Bible says of this promised Messiah, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7.25 Ahaz died in shame and rebellion. He's still in the grave. Christ was obedient to the point of death, even a shameful death on the cross, but rose in glory and is now seated at the right hand of the Heavenly Father. So in all these points, and there are more we could make, there are more contrasts we could make. Time does not permit that. We see where, in all these points, where King Ahaz failed, the promised Messiah, the Davidic ruler, who, would, who is here in this passage called Everlasting Father, he will succeed. And that was and is fulfilled in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, who was the promised Messiah, who is our Messiah. But what does it mean, everlasting Father? We said it doesn't mean that He is God the Father. There, there's, a, there's a separation there. There's still Heavenly Father and then everlasting Father. Well, we can maybe get a better picture of this as we compare... Jesus to his heavenly father. Not contrast, okay? I said compare. Because it's going to be the same. It's not going to be polar opposites like Ahaz and Christ. How about God's love as he manifests towards his people? God the Father has an everlasting love for his people. Christ Jesus as everlasting Father, also has an everlasting love for His people. The triune God, we are told, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Why? For His steadfast love endures forever. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Psalm 33.5 And that can be said of the Trinity, right? That that's not just attributed to God the Father. Those passages can be attributed to the Trinity. 
But we have specific passages, <clears throat> one of which probably a lot of people have memorized or, or, or at least are familiar with. John 3.16 For God, and this is speaking of the Father when it says God here, for God so loved the world that He, God the Father, sent His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. What was the motivation for God the Father sending His Son? Love. For God so loved the world. Ephesians chapter uh, 1, of course, going back to chapter 1. In love, He predestined us, He being whom? God the Father. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. In love. You know, we think of the doctrine of predestination and election as... as, as Oh, that's a, that's a very controversial, controversial doctrine. But it's a lovely doctrine. Yeah. Because it says, this happened because of God's love. In love He predestined us to adoption. We read in uh, 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And sent his son. So when you say God, there's once again speaking of God the Father. He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We can see this, this, this love in the character of God the Father. And it's, a, it's the love that permeates the entire Trinity. If we look at the plan of salvation, how salvation was planned and how it was accomplished and how it's carried out. It's, it's a perfect a harmony of love within the Trinity. God the Father chose. God the Son purchased. God the Holy Spirit applies. And all this is done, why? Because God is love. In His great love that He loved us with. What about Jesus? Did In His humanity... Did he possess this same love? Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Does that sound familiar? Not only does the Father have a love for his people, but Jesus has a love for his people. As the Father has loved me, Jesus said, so have I loved you. Abide in me. You see, that's the same love. The love that the Father loved Christ with, Christ loves His people with. And consequently, God loves Christ's people with too. What do we read about the church? That Jesus loved her and gave Himself for her. The same kind of sacrificial love as the Father sending His only begotten Son. <clears throat> Jesus, as everlasting Father, has the same love for His people as God the Heavenly Father does. Now, I hope I'm not confusing anybody that we're getting these two confused. They're two separate, separate beings, one God. Okay. And I'd say um, these terms that we're, we were given in Isaiah 
uh, nine, they, they can have both human and divine aspects in them. Almost all of them do. But the divine aspects are in these names so that they cannot be applied to any mortal man, but can only be applied to the Messiah, who is Christ. What about God's provision? How he provides for his people? God, in his benevolent love, provides for our every need. We are told in Scripture that our Heavenly Father makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Right? Matthew 5.45 He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. And he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Psalm 78. How about this? Jesus said, have the people sit down. And we know the story. He got these five loaves of bread and these two fish and he gave thanks and he broke them and he fed 5,000 men not to include the probably the women and children with them provision now that's not only just for his people because a lot of those people left him later but yet actually in that same chapter John chapter 6 towards the end but that didn't stop him he, he, he gave them provision And that, I think, comes out of his compassion. Just as God showed his compassion for his people throughout history, so Jesus and his humanity also showed compassion for the multitudes. And God has compassion not just on his people. We call it benevolent love, right? The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people. And on his dwelling place, Second Chronicles thirty six fifteen, God has compassion on his people. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on the afflicted. Isaiah forty nine thirteen. Then we read of Jesus in Matthew nine. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. We know the story when he was coming into Jerusalem. And, and he had compassion. He, 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 like a mother hen, how often would I have brought you under my wings? He had compassion. He wept at Lazarus' tomb. And the Bible tells us that God does not take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. In conclusion, the Bible says of Jesus, who is the promised Messiah, and here in our passage today is called Everlasting Father. The Bible says of Him, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Colossians 1, 15-18. He, this Messiah, 
everlasting Father, is the one that you are called to come to in repentance and faith. He is the one that gives you the call, come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And it's of this Messiah, this everlasting Father, that the Bible says there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. You must come to Him in repentance and faith. Repent and believe today. And for those of you who do believe, the Bible says this. Be strong in the Lord, this everlasting Father. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for giving us your word. And we thank you that not only can we enjoy the prophecies of the Old Testament, but that we can see them where they have been fulfilled in the new. And that as you promised your people of old, an eternal Davidic king to reign on David's throne, who would reign in righteousness, would usher in peace we thank you father that we have seen this come to fruition in the person and work of christ and we will continue to experience it as we grow in sanctification as we grow in the likeness of christ and as we eagerly look forward to his return and the culmination of this world in its history when you will make all things new father bless us with this your word Help us to love Christ more. Help us to obey Him more. Help us to represent Him better in this lost and dark world. And as we read that light was shown in from the darkness and the people that were once in the darkness are now in the light, Father, help us to continue to be this light. Help us continue to spread this light that Your kingdom may advance, Lord Jesus, and that You would be glorified. It's in your name, everlasting Father, that we pray. Amen. If you would stand with me and let's sing hymn number 112, Complete in Thee.